Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our walk through the, through the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5 this morning. I want to let you know up front that at the end of the service today, so we'll, we'll do different things, different ways at the end of, end of our worship services. Today, because of where we are and what we're looking at, really where we've been the last few weeks, when we get to the end of the sermon today, we're going to have a time of introspective prayer for you to be able to pray right where you are. I'm going to lead you through some times of prayer. When we finish that and we say, hey, have a good day, the response time hasn't ended. In some sense, it's just begun. Uh, as God is at work in your life this morning, know that we stay down here after the service. There will be pastors down here after the service to pray for you. If you're going through things personally, if it's been really hard just to even be here this morning. The challenge, most of the challenge was just saying, I know I need to be here as hard as it is. We want to be able to pray over you. So when we finish the service today, we have that time of prayer. Think of that as the response is just beginning. Look for people to pray for around you. Know that we would love to pray for you um, as well. The last few weeks where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, these are hard places to to be, hard things to talk about, even trying to talk as clearly as possible and, and present God's word. How do we do that? How do you deal with broken relationships? How do you handle topics like lust and adultery and divorce and lying that just come right into the middle of our lives? And then today, how do you deal with relationships of those around you? How do you handle when someone sets themselves up as your enemy? When someone seems to constantly be working against you, how do we love our enemies? And this would be one thing, it was this like random theoretical thing, except these are the lives we live. This is right in the middle of what you're facing. How do you interact with people around you that don't like you or have caused harm to you? What does it look like to follow Jesus in those situations? Here's one thing I do want to say up front before we read the verses. And I have a little slide to reinforce this just so we're all on the same page. It's the idea that if you hear any of these things in the Sermon on the Mount the last few weeks and you just feel so overburdened by guilt or I should try harder or on the opposite end you say, well, I can never do that so I'm just going to do whatever I want. Know that behind all of this are these foundations that we have to have in place to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Who God is as loving and good and wise and faithful that he forms the foundation. When you hear the word theology that you don't think boredom but you think there's my hope. As I know who God is and how he works in the world, I know how to live in this world. And I do that as one who follows Jesus. The things that we are going to say this morning will make no sense unless you have left behind one way of living and said, I've repented of that and I've trusted in Jesus for salvation. I have life and hope through him to follow him. And I don't do that on my own strength. I do that only by the power of the Holy Spirit who works through the word of God, who works through the people. Even in our Sunday school class this morning, having conversations about last week and saying, yeah, but what about this? And what about this angle? And I thought this, and I see this. That's the work of God among the people that his spirit gives us people around us to sharpen us, to help us see things we wouldn't see otherwise. And so as we approach this today, how do I love my enemies? Well, you do that because God is good and in control. Jesus transforms our life, 
And God continues to empower us to do those things. It happens from the inside out. So I don't want you to go home thinking I'm a terrible person. I'm, I'm overcome by guilt. There's no hope. I just need to try harder in life. Look to Jesus. That's what we're saying. Repent and follow him. All right, let's look what this looks like in Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the, right, on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than all the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amaius, let's pray together for just a moment. Slow our hearts and minds down. Father, I pray that for every person in the room, that as we think about what it looks like to repent of sin, to turn away from our past, and devote ourselves to Jesus, to live out the salvation that he set before us, God, that this morning you would show us what that looks like. God, remind us of the gift of the church. God, I pray that your spirit would empower us, put people around us to help us through these issues. God, I know that there are kids, elementary kids in the room, who are mistreated by people at school. There are adults who have terrible relationships in their neighborhood or in their workplace. God, there are families who are broken apart by these type of things. God, would you empower us to live as your people as we look at your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to take a page out of Jeff Hempel's uh, playbook, and I'm going to start with a movie illustration. Okay, I wanted to start with a sports illustration that comes second. I always feel guilty that I use too many sports illustrations, so I need to, I need to mix it up a little bit. Um, so how many of you have seen the movie The Count of Monte Cristo? I'm going to date myself with The Count of Monte Cristo, okay? So it's an old movie based on an Alexander uh, Dumas book story. Actually, the story, I think, comes from the 1900s, but it's a story of this man who gets mixed up in a situation with Napoleon Bonaparte, and he's sent on a mission, and he ends up being betrayed by some of his friends. In fact, four different people turn against him in the course of these events. And over the time in this story, he ends up with a life sentence in prison. And then this somewhat funny character in the story ends up breaking through the wall in the prison. He was trying to get out of prison. He went the wrong direction. He ends up in his, his cell, and through this he ends up out of prison, but he spends the rest of his life trying to get revenge on the people who had hurt him. 
And over and over and over you see his efforts to get revenge on the people who have hurt him. And finally, in the closing scene of the story, and people take the clothes in different ways, but ultimately in the closing scene of the story, he realizes the emptiness of trying to seek revenge on his own as opposed to entrusting vengeance and justice to God. It's not the perfect theology in the movie, but it gets at a really core idea. When I've been wronged, how do I respond to that person who has wronged me? So when I think about it from a sports analogy, I think about in baseball, that if the opposing pitcher hits your guy, and you go out to the mound the next inning, do you know what your job is? It's to make sure the other team feels it a little bit. Uh, your guy gets hit, you go back out, and you make sure the other team. Now, so when the... Uh, when we have our Emmaus softball league this year, I don't know what it looks like in slow pitch softball if the other team hits one of our guys and then we slow pitch it back to them. It doesn't have quite the same effect, but uh, it still gets the, uh, the idea across. What does it look like when you've been hurt? How do you respond to that person? How do you respond to that situation? Well, here's what you get in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This phrase here, sometimes called lex talionis, it's this idea that comes from Exodus chapter 21, and you can find a similar idea even outside the pages of the Bible. You'll find this concept in other places, but it it's finds its core in the law that God gives to the people about how they're supposed to live. And so it's a judicial setup to prevent excessive retribution. That if you've been harmed in one way, you can't turn around and harm someone else in a more violent way or in a way that goes beyond how you were harmed. So it was this idea that was set up to provide justice in the world. Here's the problem that Jesus is confronting. What had been set up as a legal framework or a judicial framework was being used to handle every personal conflict that came along. Here's the conflict. Legal idea to help society order well, work well. Oh, I can do that in my own life. Every time I'm harmed, I'm going to get back at them. You've never heard this in your house, but he hit me. Well, he hit me first. She yelled at me and called me a name. Well, she yelled at me and called me a name first. This is how it works in our life, that there's this circle of violence, this, this gain mentality or tribal mentality. We've been wrong, so we're going to wrong someone else in, in the same way. Or the person who maybe they don't attack back, but their silence, is there a form of attacking you? That passive-aggressive idea, so they've been hurt, and they're going to hurt you back, but in a passive, silent treatment sort of way, is that the way we've been called to live? And you got verse 39 coming. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What does it mean as a follower of Jesus to turn the other cheek? Now, the image here 
of being slapped on the right cheek. I was going to bring somebody up here and demonstrate it, but it didn't seem like a good idea. So, if you were most, you, you always presented scenarios with a person with a dominant right hand. It's just kind of the idea that the people who have right hand kind of dominate society. Left-handers would say something else. But anytime scenes were set up, you would be the right-handed person. How do you hit somebody on the right cheek if you're right-handed? It's not like this, is it? It's like that. It's a backhanded slap. The scenario here is that if you hit someone, it's less of this and more of this. In other words, it's less about personal injury and it's more about dishonor, disrespect, insult. It's the idea that you would try to instigate something with somebody else by insulting them, slapping them on the right cheek. I don't know about you, but there is nothing to make your blood pressure go through the roof and make you want to respond like being hit in the face. I mean, it's one thing to be slapped in the back. It's another to be even hit in the gut. But when someone's hand makes contact with your face, like all the rage just comes to the surface at a time like this. Of How could you do that to me? What does it mean here that do not resist the person who is evil if they slap you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Well, to understand a little bit about what Jesus is saying, let's get a background here. Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50 is one of the passages in the Old Testament that presents the suffering servant of God who would come to make a way of salvation. He would say, here's the way of life, here's the way of salvation. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The idea that you would be dishonored or disrespected. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Look at verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly or justly. So make sure you see up front that Jesus is not calling the people to do something that he himself will not do. In fact, this very idea of giving up his honor, of giving up his body, it's going to be the way that brings salvation. It's going to be the way that brings forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to something, but it's something that I'm going to do as well. Entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. Where does that come from? That's Romans chapter 12 type language. Romans chapter 12 and 13 if you are looking for another place in Scripture to read this afternoon, or you say, you know what, I have not read the Bible in a long time. I need to get back into the Bible. I need something that connects with what you're talking about this morning. Let me encourage you, Romans chapters 12 and 13 tie in with what we're talking about this morning. So if you haven't been in the Bible in a while, or you're looking for something to follow up, that's your friend this week to be able to do that. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then verse 19 goes like this. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In the story of the Count of Monte Cristo, this is the battle that he's facing in prison, is can I leave vengeance and justice to the Lord, or do I take that in my own hands to make things right? Jesus says if you're slapped on the right cheek, if someone insults you and comes against you, you turn to them the other also. What's the pattern? There's going to be a pattern that we're going to see in all the verses we find this morning. Here's the pattern. Sacrifice our rights, flip the relationship, display love and generosity. That's the pattern that shows up over and over again. Sacrifice my rights, so the Beastie Boys song will not work here. Um, We're not going to live for our own rights. We're going to sacrifice our rights. We're going to flip the relationship, and we're going to display love and generosity. Sacrificing my rights means when someone else looks at you and says, man, you should get back at them. You should respond like, you have the right. You say, ah, I gave up my rights. As a follower of Jesus, I don't live to protect my rights. I laid those down to follow the way of Jesus. And so I'm going to flip the relationship. I'm not the victim here. I'm actually going to seek the good of the other person. And I'm going to display generosity and love to them in a way that goes beyond anything that anybody else can ever imagine. And you cannot get to that point unless you're at a place where your view of God is that he's in control, he will show justice, and he is good and wise. If you have that relationship with God, then you can say, okay, I can trust him to take care of this situation. It's not up to me to make the situation right. And when I look at that other person, they're not my enemy. They're a person who Jesus died for, and I need to show them another way to live. And when I look at myself, my job is not to make myself great or defend my own honor. My identity is in Christ. And so I have a freedom to respond in a way that other people wouldn't respond. Now, here's the deal. When you read these verses in this part of Matthew, if you're reading them correctly, you should then, on the edge of your seat, say, but what about this? What about this? What about this? This is where wisdom comes in. This is where the work of God's Spirit. But, but what about, aren't I going to appear weak? Here's how it's normally phrased. Aren't people just going to run over me or take advantage of me if I live in this way? Well, remember, there's a moral strength that comes when you say, I'm not going to fight back. What we tell our kids a lot of times is it takes more strength not to get revenge than it does to get revenge. Anybody can just go get revenge. It takes strength of character. It takes deep trust in the Lord. It takes Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a fine verse for sports. It's even better when you want to get back at your neighbor. And you say, no, no, no. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me, including not trying to take revenge or get something back against the person who has hurt me. But what about protecting other people if they're being attacked? Remember, what's the verse about? It's about your personal honor being attacked. 
This verse is not saying anything about if your friend or your loved one or your child is being attacked, you shouldn't step in and protect them. Please do. All throughout Scripture are images of protecting the weak and the vulnerable. So should we seek justice on behalf of someone else? Should we seek their protection? Yes, yeah, absolutely we should do that. This verse is talking about when your honor has been insulted or when someone is trying to instigate you, push your buttons, get you into a cycle of violence, you're able to turn that away. What about if someone is attacking me physically? Should I respond and protect myself? Yeah, I would say most of the time, absolutely. That's, that's what you, you should do. Remember, this verse is less about personal injury and more about insult or provoking or going after your honor. Now, there's a way that you defend yourself. There's a way you do this in a way that honors the other person. But you find examples in Scripture where Paul is about to be attacked, and he uses strategies to get away. He doesn't go after the other person, but he uses strategies to get away. I don't want you to hear this verse and say, every time somebody attacks me physically, I just have to stand there and, and take it. What this verse is about is about when your honor is attacked and you have that instinct to get revenge and you say, no, I'm gonna trust the Lord. Okay, let's watch this pattern continue. Look at the next, the next section. Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. What's it talking about here? This verse that someone would sue you and take your tunic or your shirt, it was the main undergarment shirt is what's being talked about here. Why would you be sued and someone try to take your shirt? Almost certainly it's a debt situation. When you read about these type of situations in the ancient world, it's because you owe a debt to somebody and all they can get from you in court is the shirt off your back and they're still coming after the shirt off your back. So you owe money to somebody, you're a poor person, you're in a bad situation, somebody you owe money to is coming after you to get your shirt. Jesus says, while you're at it, just give them your coat as well. Now what's the word for coat? It was a word for an outer garment that you could also use as a blanket or a pillow. Um, I wanna be really sensitive with this illustration because this might be your story before. But if you've interacted or spent much time around people who are homeless, that main outer garment is multifunctional. Sometimes it's your bag that you carry things in. Sometimes it's your blanket that you wrap up with at night. Sometimes it's your pillow when you're laying on a bench. This is the garment that's being talked about here. It's this outer garment. And you actually find laws in the Old Testament where people were forbidden to sue for another person's outer garment. In other words, it was considered illegal in the law of God in the Old Testament to sue and take someone's outer garment. Jesus is saying, if someone comes to sue you because you're poor and they want to take your shirt, just give them your outer garment. Give them everything you have. Now immediately you say, but what about? But what about? We have to hear the force of it though, because what do we do? We sacrifice our rights, we flip the relationship, because now you're not the victim, you're the giver. Now you're not the poor person, you're the rich person giving away everything you have to give. And we display generosity, and we display love to the person that's coming after us to hurt us. What's the other thing that happens in this situation? 
the other person is exposed. Their evil, their oppression, their injustice is exposed when you respond with generosity and love in that type of situation. Because if you just try to defend your rights and attack back, you look like the bad person in the situation. If you respond with generosity, everyone says, look how cruelly they're treating that person in need. Look at the next example. Verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is the concept in the ancient world that the Roman Empire, the Roman government, especially the soldiers, they could force a civilian to carry their material and their equipment for one mile. But that's as far, bless me, um, that's as far as they could force someone to carry the equipment or, or the material. Jesus says, if you're a presser, if the government forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. It's the same word that's used in the story when Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry the cross of Christ. You're forced to go one mile, go two miles. So you got your IRS bill this year, and they said you owed $1,000? Send them $2,000. Really? What? Who lives that? Are you serious? What? what, what, what? Sacrifice your rights, flip the relationship, display love and generosity. So I sacrifice my right to stop at one mile, I go further. I flip the relationship. Now I'm not the oppressed, I'm the worker. I'm in charge of the situation, and I'm displaying love and generosity to someone who everyone around says, that's your enemy, don't do anything extra to help them. Next verse. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. People have looked at this verse for years and said, that would kill an economy. That would just allow people who don't work to be able to carry on. Remember, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about how do you treat the people around you who try to take advantage of you? How do you treat them when they try to insult you or attack your honor? You sacrifice your right. This is not my money anyway. Actually, I have no money in my pocket right now because I left it in the car. But um, this is not my money to begin with. It's God's. I'm going to flip the relationship. And so this person's not just a beggar. They're a person created in the image of God who needs my help right now. And I'm going to display love and generosity. Now, if you carry that out all the way, how long can you live that way? Well, theoretically, not very long. Because you're going to be the one begging. You're going to be the one looking for help. But what it does teach us is our reflex reaction. Our reflex reaction is not to get revenge, and it's not to withhold. It's to live open-handed. God, you put this person in front of me. Give me wisdom and give me integrity in how I deal with them. I don't treat them as an object. I treat them as a person that you've created and for whom Jesus has died. And so I change that relationship. When you can change the relationship between someone begging or asking you for money, I know where we're located right here 
We don't run into this as often, uh, though we do run into it quite often in the church office, but when we lived in New Orleans, this was a daily reality when we lived in New Orleans. Amanda would carry around bags of essentials in the car, and they would just pass them out to the homeless people that they encountered uh, at, at the intersections. And many of these people stayed at the same place. So you got like on a first name basis with the people of, uh, hey, here you are, good to see you again. And they would, the kids began to identify, hey, that person probably needs something. They probably could use a bag. And then you would say, no, no, that's just a millennial who dresses like that. They actually make 100000 a year. They're totally fine. <laughs> like we're trying to look for somebody else who really is in need. And begging. But how do you deal with somebody in that type of situation? Open-handed, open heart flip the relationship, display love and generosity. Where does this lead? It leads to verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, first quick question, where would you have heard that? Well, when you go back to the law and the first five books of the Old Testament, you do find phrases about love your neighbor You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. You don't find the words, hate your enemy. What had happened, though, over time is that especially with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they have said, well, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, that must mean I'm supposed to hate my enemy. And so this idea had grown up around this verse. Obviously, the whole thing turns on what you find with the Good Samaritan parable in Luke chapter 10. Who really is my neighbor? And how am I supposed to treat people who others say should be my enemy? What do I do with that? Verse 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Just a quick stop. According to my notes, I'm supposed to keep reading, but it's a quick stop. This verse, this verse should really, really make us think about how we pray as Christians. The fact that God would show special favor of natural resources or his care, particularly on people who are Christians and not on those who are not Christians. According to this verse, as the creator of the world, God causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know where this starts to impact things is God let my team win because I think they have more Christians on their team than the other team does. Like, we're, we're the good guys and so you should bestow your favor and grace upon us because if you counted up the number of Christians, we have more on our team than they do. It doesn't work that way. Even the way that we pray that God would send rain or the way that we pray that God would do good, we're praying that that would happen to all people. That especially those who do not know what it is to follow Jesus, they would experience things like the sun and the rain and the beauty of God. They would experience those and in the process they would trust him. So all I'm saying is let's be very careful when we pray for those things that we're praying that those who are not following Jesus would experience God's goodness and process they would trust him. All right, let's keep going. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, 
What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, only those who are connected to you, what are you doing more than all the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? One of Jesus' most famous statements comes here, this idea of what does it mean to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? When you pray for someone who has set themselves up as your enemy, maybe they have hurt you. Maybe they've hurt your loved ones, which oftentimes is even more difficult than if they've hurt you directly. It's one thing if you come after me, but you come after my wife and kids, that's a totally different area. Like, it just ratchets up. How do you love your enemies in those situations? Jesus says you pray for them. Do you know what happens to your enemy when you pray for them? Often you don't, in fact. <laughs> the answer is sometimes nothing. Do you know what happens to you when you pray for your enemy? A lot. Because you're forced to deal internally with this person has set themselves up seeking to hurt me. They've set themselves up against my family. God, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for your goodness and your power and your love to be worked in their life. I'm going to pray that you would change my heart, that you would change my life. And I'm not going to avoid them. I'm going to greet those who are my enemy. I'm going to reach out and break down barriers that the world said you should leave up. Now, hear me out. Is there a place for boundaries in life? Absolutely. Boundaries are one of those ways we can show love. But we don't put up boundaries because we count others as enemies. We put up boundaries because it can be a healthy form of love and we need those in place. This is talking about setting up fences, not, not boundaries. We pray for them. We greet them. And we do good for them. What does it look like when your family has been mistreated or you've been mistreated and you turn around and you care for that person and you bless that person and you love that person. The man who was my mentor going through college, he told me a story about one time where he was in a workplace and this person treated him like trash, just totally mistreated him in the workplace. Finally, it came to a point where they got into a meeting with management and he said, before I get, got to that meeting, I'd been reading verses from the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, I got in that meeting, and I had all this information that I could hold over this person's head. And I had all this, thing, all this game plan that I came with to the meeting about what I was going to say. And he said, I felt the Lord just saying, bless them. Now, bless them can also mean curse in <laughs> English vernacular, but he said, I heard the Lord saying, bless them. And so in that meeting, I just spoke every good thing I knew to say about that person. And he said, as they were leaving the meeting, the person looked over at him and said, why did you choose to do that? And he told them, because Jesus changed my heart. Jesus changed my life. I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to seek your best. With the result that you get, verse 48, that we would be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Remember that our word perfect here in the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, it's a word that means whole, complete, devoted. What it means in this situation is 
we can't say, oh, I love God, I'm devoted to him, and at the same time despise those around us. That if we're going to be children of our Father in heaven, that we will pray for and show love and do good to those around us. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were in a position that you could have taken revenge on someone? Someone has said, you have a right to do this to them or to get back at them. You have a right to do this. You were in a position that you could have responded in one way. You said, God, I'm going to sacrifice what other people say I should do. I'm going to flip the relationship. I'm going to be for them. I'm going to pray for them, do good. I'm even going to show love and generosity toward them so that they would know your love, would know what it is to be made right with you. And hear me out on this very last part before I pray for us. Remember this. The reason that we show love to our enemies is because God showed love to us when we were his enemies. That our hearts in sin and rebellion were set against God. Ephesians says, even as his enemies, even as those who rebelled against him, But even while we were in sin, Christ died for us. Even when we were opposed to the things of God, he came and gave his son so that we could have forgiveness and we could have life. And when you've experienced that type of forgiveness and that type of love, you're gonna be in a position to turn around and love those who would set themselves up as your enemies. Would you bow your heads with me? I told you earlier that we're going to end our time today with, with a time of prayer. You kids that are in elementary, and I know normally you're in uh, Elevate, but we're in here together. You guys have done a great job listening. If you'll just, right now, even you may have friends at school who constantly are trying to get at you or cause you to respond in a certain way. And God would call you to pray for them. Adults, how can you turn enemies into those who experience the love of God? Who's in your life right now that maybe you would be tempted to take revenge against or get back at? And God's calling you to pray and to do good and to love, to trust him with that relationship. This happens when we understand God's love and forgiveness in our own lives. Let me ask you right where you are to consider what is my relationship with God. Before I worry about my relationship with others, what is my relationship like with God right now? That in sin and rebellion, I set myself up as an enemy opposed to the ways of God. But he sent Jesus to die in my place so that I would have forgiveness and have hope. If you have never trusted in Jesus for salvation, that's the beginning for all that God is calling you to do. Maybe you've been away from the Lord for a long time. Maybe you haven't been in church, you haven't read the Bible, you haven't considered these type of things in a long time. 
and God is using this morning to call you back to his word, back to worship, that you would just trust him, that you would make that commitment. And we said this a couple of weeks ago, but here in a minute when we're dismissed, you may need to go and have conversations with some people. You may need to go and buy something good for a person who has set them up, themselves up as your enemy. Whatever God is calling you to do, I pray that you would do it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that we have through Jesus. God, thank you for the power of prayer, both in our lives and those around us. God, you do change hearts. You change others in ways that we never could as we're trying to manipulate the situation. And God, so powerfully you change our own hearts. God, I pray that if we're in here this morning and we have refused to greet people because we have a broken relationship, that we would reach out to that person. God, that we would be generous and open-handed because everything we have is from you to begin with. And so, God, we live as those who are able to give freely because you've given freely. God, thank you for the gift of worship. Thank you for the gift of relationships. God, even as we dismiss right now, God, continue to move among us that we would pray with and for one another, that we would greet one another, have conversations as we leave here. God, make us a church that's known as a generous place where we would love those who are our enemies, God, that we would love them in a way that points them to the hope of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.